stand with me. We'll begin with the call to worship. This one's from Psalm 100. And I know I've said this a lot, but this, this really is a psalm about God calling us to worship Him. And, you know, it's not, hopefully we don't just get in a routine where we just do this every week, but this is a call to worship God calling us. We're beginning the worship service. And the worship service is not just the music, it's not just the preaching, but it is all of us. Prayer, singing, confession is all worship and praise to God. So let's remember that. I'll read the bold section if you'll follow along after me. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Amen. If you want to turn to him, three, we'll sing praise to our triune God as we sing holy, holy, holy.
We see here in our confession of sin, taken from John chapter 8, Jesus says these words, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. We see here and throughout the scripture that sin leads to death. That all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 to the end of Revelation, we see that the wages of sin is death. That even the littlest sin, no matter how small we think it is, the end of that sin is death. Not only death temporally in our lives, right? When we sin against others, when people sin against us, it's death to relationships, to friendships, to families. But ultimately, our sin before God leads to death eternally. And Jesus here is saying that all sin leads to death, even the smallest sins, and that it's only by repenting of our sin, believing in the incarnate Christ, the one who is the great I Am, fully God and fully man, that we are saved from the penalty and punishment of our sins. So let's confess our sins this morning and pray this prayer of confession. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, holy and awesome is your name. You are high and lifted up. You not only created us, but sustains us every moment of the day. Yet we, in our sin, trust in our own strength, our own works, our own way of salvation. Forgive us, Lord, for the sake of Christ, when we trust in ourselves. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to look to the cross, where we see your justice and mercy. Amen. If you want to turn to him, 154, we'll sing the newer song that we sang last week, with a lot of language taken from Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, and even Psalm 110. We'll sing stricken, smitten, and afflicted.
Isaiah 53 goes on and says that by his sufferings, the many will be made righteous. That it was the will of the Lord to crush this suffering servant, our Lord Jesus Christ, but it's so that he might see his seed, his people, and be satisfied. That by the one man's righteousness, the many will be counted righteous. And so, in our assurance of pardon this morning, many call this the Protestant absolution. In Romans 8.1 it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That judgment, condemnation, for those that are in Christ is no more. He's paid the penalty. He's the one that was stricken, smitten, and afflicted for sinners like us. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we come before you um, humbly this morning as we just sang about we're reminded of the great suffering and sorrow that our Savior went through on the cross. That we who deserve death for our sin and guilt, Christ, the perfect Son of God and Son of Man, suffered for us. And so this morning we come with hearts that should be affected by this, that our affection should be turned towards you in adoration and thanksgiving and praise and gratitude. And we pray that as we see our not only crucified but risen Savior this morning with the eyes of faith, that we would be assured that for all those that are in him, there's no condemnation, there's no guilt, there's no wrath left. It's been poured out on the Son who took the guilt that we deserve. We pray for um, your church this morning, for the churches around the world, local bodies that are meeting together, um, that are preaching the gospel, being faithful to the scriptures, Lord. We pray that you would strengthen those bodies, um, that the proclamation of the word would go out this morning, that believers would be grown and assured in their faith and that those that do not know you would be convicted of their sin. They would see that their sin leads to death, that there's no hope for them in their sin, that they need to turn from their sin and turn to you. We pray that that would happen all over the world this morning. We pray for this body as we come together this morning and worship. We pray that you would bind us together in unity, that we would be united by your spirit this morning in our worship and our praise and as a local expression of what you've done in redemption we pray that you would um, be glorified in the praises of your people this morning we pray all these things in your son's name amen you guys can be seated this morning um our confession of faith this morning comes from the nicene creed which we've done this a couple times before, I think. We've done the Apostles' Creed several times. The Nicene Creed comes to us from the 4th century. And it's really, at its heart, a Trinitarian document. It puts forth this doctrine of the Trinity, which the Council of Nicaea didn't invent, but merely made explicit what the Church had believed implicitly before. In other words... This creed is not making up a new doctrine. The word Trinity isn't found in our scriptures. That doesn't mean they made up this doctrine. But they're merely writing down what the scripture faithfully teaches 
And we'll also see a lot of language in here about Christology, which is the study of the person of Christ, who he is, what does it mean that he's the Son of God, begotten of the Father, not made one substance with the Father, that's all language we see here. And there was a lot of heresies at the time that were floating around saying Jesus wasn't fully God, that the Spirit wasn't God. And so this is a big part of why we are Trinitarians today, why we are creedal, why we believe it's important to go back to the creeds and confessions, because it's very easy to wander from those things. So if you want to read with me this morning our confession of faith from the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. If you want to turn with me this morning in your Bibles to John chapter 5, we'll be continuing our study through the Gospel of John. We had a bit of a providential hindrance last week, if you remember, that <laughs> kept us from finishing the service. Luckily, Catherine is doing okay and resting, so thank you guys for your prayers for her and um, all you guys did on Sunday to make sure she got home safely and was okay. So last week, we, we began talking about John chapter 5, and we looked at this healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, that there was this man that was lame for 38 years, and instantly Jesus made him well. That he had come to this pool for 38 years, he tried to rinse in this pool in order to be healed by this superstitious thought that by somehow washing in these waters that he would be healed and made well. And we see Jesus come to him and cut through his superstition, cut through 
all these preconceived notions about what it means to be healed, and he told him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And Jesus heals him instantly, that this man who was paralyzed for 38 years is instantly made well, instantly healed, and can now walk. And as we said last week, the mat that once carried him is now carried by him. <laughs> this great reversal has happened. Jesus has healed this man. He can walk. But the twist of the story last week was that this happened on the Sabbath. This was a Saturday for the Jewish people. And the Sabbath was a day where you were to not work. And because of the legalism of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had added laws to God's law about what could and could not be done on the Sabbath. I was reading, studying for this passage last week. There were some insane laws <laughs> that they had. Not only could you not start a fire on the Sabbath, but you couldn't put out a fire on the Sabbath. Even if it was burning down your property in your house, you couldn't put out a fire because that would be considered work. Unless someone was in danger, then you could put it out because you would be preserving life. So they had come up with all these laws about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. And one of those was taking up your mat and moving it to a place. You couldn't pick up something and move it. And so because of that, because of these legalistic Sabbath laws that had been placed um, on this man, they confront this man... And ultimately, they confront Jesus, who told him to pick up his mat. And so, it's amazing, when we, when we think about what was going on, this man was just healed of his sickness. He was in a hopeless, helpless condition. Jesus saved him out of this condition. But because of the legalistic, domineering laws on this man, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders of the day, the religious leaders of the day, instead of being amazed at this miracle and the salvation of this man's physical sickness, they were angry. Instead of being amazed and rejoicing, they got angry at Jesus. They persecuted Jesus, is what John says. They call him a Sabbath breaker and a blasphemer because of the words that he says after. And what we talked about last week was this idea that Jesus here could have tried to explain himself. We talked that Jesus is not actually breaking the Sabbath, that there's, in the Sabbath law, there was exceptions for acts of mercy and necessity, and that Jesus healing this man was by no means breaking the Sabbath, but was actually upholding it. So Jesus could have, you know, argued with the Pharisees and said, well, I'm not actually breaking the Sabbath, just let me explain to you. But he actually uses this as an opportunity to press into deeper realities of what's going on. That these Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, they only saw Jesus according to his human nature. They only saw him as a good man that was walking around. Maybe he did heal that person, but they did not believe he was the incarnate Son of God. Very God, very God. And so Jesus, as the unique Son of God, the co-laborer with the Father, who not only created the world, but providentially upholds the world and works in his world all the time, uses this Sabbath controversy to talk about who he is and what he came to do, about his identity as the not only son of man, 
but his identity as the Son of God, only begotten from the Father, very God of very God. That Jesus here knows what he's saying, but these people's response to him, instead of coming to the Savior, they try to kill the Savior. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And then we're going to look at Jesus, his explanation of these words that he said in verse 17. That Jesus here is transfiguring himself in the form of words. Many of us are familiar with the transfiguration, right? Where Jesus ascends a mountain and his glory is revealed, his clothes shine. The glorious words we have here in the chapter of 5 of, verse, of John are a transfiguration of words where we're peeling back the veil of Jesus' glory as the only Son of God. And as John says in the prologue, we have seen his glory. And that's what we'll see today in these words of Scripture. So I'm going to read the passage for us. I'll pray for us and then we'll look at God's word. I'm going to start back at verse 16. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, saying, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning. We thank you for who you are. That you are the God of the universe, the creator of all things, visible and invisible. That you not only created the world, but you sustain the world, that you sustain us right now, that we have breath in our lungs, because you are causing it. You uphold the universe by the word of your power, and in you all things hold together. That if you were to cease for a moment in your work of providence, we would cease to exist. So we acknowledge that this morning, Lord, and we pray that as you've given us minds to think, and as we come to your word this morning with ears to hear, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see the great weighty truths that you have for us in your word, and that we would see the glory of Christ this morning. 
that we would not see him only according to his flesh, but according to his divinity. That we would not only see the work of the Son in his incarnation, but the work of the Son in his creation and redemption that have happened throughout history and will be consummated at the end of all things. Help us this morning, Lord. Our minds are fallen and finite. We cannot comprehend the depths of who you are, but we pray this morning that you would give us ears to hear, minds to see what you have for us in your word today. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. I'm going to be honest with you guys. This has been some of the hardest scripture for me to like get my mind around. I don't know if you, any of you read the passage before on a Sunday, and maybe you've read this passage before, and you're just thinking, what in the world is this verse talking about? <laughs> maybe that happens. It happens to me frequently. So, And as I come to this scripture this morning, there's a lot of theology in this passage. There's a lot of deep, profound truths that we don't talk a lot about in the Christian faith. This idea of the Son and his relationship to the Father. This idea of the mystery of the Trinity, the mystery of the Incarnation, these two great mysteries of the Christian faith. How can God be three in one? How can Christ, the Son of God, take on flesh? And so it's easy to treat these passages sort of like a systematic theology textbook. We could just sort of go through here and do point by points and make it very systematic, make it very theological. And that's necessary, and we should do that. But it's important that we take a step back and see this as God's unfolding plan of redemption. That the scriptures that we have are his special revelation to us. That these are not merely the words of men, but the words of God. That holy men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit wrote these words down. Not only the Old Testament, but also the New. And this is God's revelation to us, right? That we don't hear God's voice audibly telling us what to do. That he's given us his word. And that's how we know his will and his way. And so this word, as we see in John chapter 20, it's meant to bring us life. That these words are not meant to just confuse us, even though they do. They're not meant to just puff us up with knowledge about how much we can talk about the Trinity and all these things. But they are meant to bring us life. That we're to read John verses 18 through 24. And we're meant to see the life that we have in God through Christ. Even though there's hard things, even though there's difficult, <laughs> difficult things to understand for us fallen creatures, there's life in these verses as well. So before we get into it, I think it's helpful to sort of take a step back and, and pretend like we are someone in John chapter 5. Like we're a first century Jew who know some things about the Old Testament. We know the Old Testament scriptures. We've gone to synagogue. Maybe we've come to this festival that Jesus is at. We've come to make a sacrifice. We've brought our whole family. So we're familiar with the Old Testament. We're familiar with Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, this promised Messiah that's supposed to come and save his people. And maybe we've even heard about this Jesus character. Right? Maybe we've heard about him turning water into wine. Maybe we've heard him about saying that he would destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. Maybe we were even at this pool when Jesus healed this man. And 
we had seen this man here for years. He couldn't walk. He was lame, paralyzed, and all of a sudden he could walk. And we're amazed. And we're like, this man, Jesus, is, is not normal. Normal people can't just make someone that's been paralyzed for 38 years walk. And maybe we're even familiar with some of these prophecies in the Old Testament. Isaiah 35 talks about at the time of the new covenant, at the time of the Messiah, the lame will walk, the mute will speak, the lame will leap. This is what Isaiah 35, 5 says. And so maybe we're thinking, could this be the Christ? Could this be the Messiah, the one that's come to save us? But then you hear Jesus say these words in verse 17 and then in verse 19 through the end of the chapter. And you hear Jesus speak about himself. And you turn to your friend and you say, is he saying what I think he's saying? Is Jesus claiming to be God? Maybe you can get behind him as the Messiah. Maybe you can get behind him as this man who's able to heal and bring great miracles to the people. We'll see that in John chapter 6 with the feeding of the 5,000. But it sounds like Jesus is claiming to be God. He says, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. He's putting his activity, his working, on the same level as God. And he's even calling God his own father. Jesus is claiming something that many Jews would not have been comfortable with. He's claiming to be one with Yahweh, with God. And so, if we're a good Jew, we would have been familiar with the Shema, which is the, 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 the sentence that was recited three times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, and the Lord is one. If you're a Jew, you worship one God, Yahweh. In the Old Testament, there's only one God. We're not like the pagans. We're not like the Canaanites who worship many gods who are poly... Uh, what's the word? What does it mean? To, the word is blank. <laughs> poly... I can't remember. Many gods. It'll come to me at all. So we're not like the pagan nations. We're monotheist. We're not... It's still not coming to me. Anyway, that word that means many gods. So you're a good Jew. You worship one God. You recite this Shema three times a day. There's only one God. There's only one God. There's only one God. And if you know the Old Testament, Isaiah 43 says, there's no God formed before me, neither shall there be after me, that there is only one God. And we see further throughout the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy that it is God alone who raises the dead and it is God alone who gives life to his people. In Genesis 18, we see it is God alone, Yahweh alone, who is the judge of all the earth. No one else. It's only Yahweh. It's only God. In Exodus 20, we see that Yahweh alone is worthy of worship and honor. And Jesus here, in verses 19 through 23, is saying something that should completely boggle the minds of the people that were hearing it. 
Because, like I just said, it is Yahweh alone who does all these things. It is God alone who gives life. It is God alone who judges. And Jesus is saying these things. In verse 21, he says, The Son also gives life and raises the dead. That was a divine prerogative. That was only something Yahweh could do. Jesus is saying, I'm also doing that. In verse 22, he says, Not only does the Father judge, but the Son is given all judgment. In the Old Testament, that was only to be assigned to God. You remember Sodom and Gomorrah, the fire rains down from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah, and it says after that that it is God alone who is the judge of all the earth. Jesus is saying, I am the judge. In verse 23, it says that all honor shall be given not only to the Father, but also to the Son. And when we think of honor here, it should make us think of worship, adoration, praise. So Jesus, in these verses, is claiming not just to be like God, not just to be the first and highest creation of God, not just to be eternally subordinated to the God of the Father, but is very truly God, that he is co-equal and co-eternal, that the, my Father is working I myself am working. Whatever God is doing, I'm doing that. Because I'm God. So these words here should be startling. They should be, they should be baffling to the people that were hearing them. Yet Jesus is saying them. <laughs> Jesus, as I said, is revealing his glory. Just as the transfiguration revealed the glory of Christ physically, Jesus, with his words here, is revealing his glory as the only Son of God, the unique second person of the triune God. So when we talk about the Trinity, we have to be really careful, right? As I mentioned this morning, we talk about all these creeds and confessions that are using very specific language, language with a lot of history, to talk about what is the Trinity. Like I said, it's not a word that we find in our Bibles. You can't go to 1 John and find the word Trinity. The Trinity is what we, we were going to get to in our catechism this morning. The this, this 24th question in the Orthodox Catechism says, Since there is but one God, why do we speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And the answer is, because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. That God has revealed himself in his word as one God in three persons. Or if you want a more technical definition, if somebody ever asks you, what is the Trinity? Because maybe somebody's asked you that before, maybe you've thought that question in your head, what is the Trinity? <laughs> and how would I explain that to someone on the street? Would I use analogies? Probably not. Here's a more technical definition. This is the definition for the Trinity. That God exists eternally in three persons sharing a common substance. Substance there not being like material, right? God is not a material thing. God is spirit. But substance being the whatness, the whatness of something. What it is, God, namely. So God exists eternally in three persons sharing the same substance. Or we could say it like this. There's kind of three truths that we need to uphold. First, that there's one true and living God. There's not multiple gods. There's one true and living God. 
The second is that there are three divine persons in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That there are three persons in God that are distinct from one another. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit. And these are not simply just modes in which God appears. If you've ever heard of modalism, that's what modalism would teach. That's a heresy in the first couple centuries, that God simply just appears as the Father, and then he appears as the Son, and then he appears as the Spirit. We're saying there's three divine persons that are distinct from one another. And then thirdly, that all of those persons are equal. The equality of the persons. That the Father is not greater than the Son, the Son is not greater than the Holy Spirit. That there's no hierarchy in the Trinity, that there's one will, one purpose in the divine being of God, and that all three persons are not in some sort of hierarchy where one submits to the other, but are co-equal and co-eternal. And like I said, this is a mystery, <laughs> because we have no analogies for this. People try to use water in its three states, water as a gas, water as a liquid, and water as a solid. But that's modalism. <laughs> that's modalism. That's God just appearing in different forms. That's, that doesn't help us explain the Trinity. Or some people will use the three-leaf clover. But that's another heresy called partialism, where each clover only makes up part of the divine being. So the, the Son is only 33% God, the Father is only 33% God, but when you put them all together, you get... That's not what we're saying. We're saying that each person is fully God, sharing a common substance, yet there are three persons in one God. So it's a, it's a mystery, meaning that we can't fully understand it, there's no analogies for it, but yet we're to confess it and try to understand it as best we can. And what's amazing is, if we, we can't forget where we've gone in John, if you want to turn with me to John chapter 1. What do we see in the prologue? John is laboring to make this point. <laughs> With human finite language, he's trying to make this point. What does John 1, 1 say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That this Word, the Son of God, is eternal in the beginning. So this is an eternal person, not created. We see that this Son was with God, so He's distinct from the Father. The Son is not the Father. The Son is distinct from the Father. But we see ultimately that this Word, the Son of God, was God, is divine. So this Son is eternal, distinct from the Father, but is yet fully God. We see in verse 3 that this Son was not created, but was actually the creator of all things, which is another prerogative of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Yahweh was the creator. Yahweh was the one that made the heavens and the earth. John is telling us the Son is a co-creator with the Father. And finally, we see in verse 14 that this Word of God, the Son of God, takes on flesh and tabernacles with his people. This is the second great mystery. We have the mystery of the Trinity, and then we have the mystery of the Incarnation, which is that the Son of God, the second person of the Triune God, took on flesh, assumed human nature. This is another great mystery. How could God take on flesh and not stop being God? 
He did it by taking on a human nature. He didn't subtract a divine nature. He didn't stop being God. He became what he was not, human, never ceasing to be what he always was. This is our two-nature redeemer. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but it's helpful to know that these things are in our confession of faith as well. If you were to turn to chapter 8 in the confession, it's on Christ the mediator. And paragraph 2 is just restating all of this for us. This idea of the incarnation that the Son of God took on human flesh. It says this, The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance, and equal with him who made the world, who upholds and governs all things he has made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. So that the two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, that is human and divine, were joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. There's a lot of words in there, but what we're doing is really we're joining with the Nicene Creed, we're joining with the Apostles' Creed, we're joining with the Orthodox throughout the ages that confess that there's one God in three persons, and that the second person of the triune God, the Son, took on flesh for us and for our salvation. And this is the whole point of John's Gospel. What's he say in John chapter 20? I've written these things so that you might believe. Believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh to bring life to his people. So it's not enough to just believe in one God, right? Muslims believe in one God. Jews believe in one God. We believe in the triune God. And it's not enough to just see Jesus as a mere man, as a, as a good moral example. We must see him as true God. As John 8 says, unless you believe that I am Yahweh, you will die in your sins. So this was the problem that Jesus is confronting. A lot of this is sort of preparation for, <laughs> for reading and trying to understand these passages because if we just jump into them without understanding who God is and what Christ is, then we're going to sort of misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. And that's what the problem was with these people. They were only seeing Jesus according to his human nature. They saw a man in front of them heal someone, and they think to themselves, he must be just a man. He must be just a man. How can Jesus say these things? How can he say that he's going to judge the world? How can he say he's going to raise the dead? How can he say that we should honor and worship him? He's just a man. As they'll say later on in John, isn't this Joseph's son? <laughs> they think of him as the boy down the street. Isn't this just the kid that we saw growing up? Jesus is saying, no, there's more going on here than meets the eye. He's pulling back the veil. He's revealing his eternal divine nature that he shared with the Father in eternity past. And so as we come to verse 19, where we'll start to try to understand some of these statements that he says specifically in verse 19 and verse 20, 
we have to do something that's really important. We have to distinguish between Christ's human nature and his divine nature. We don't divide them. We don't separate them. There's not two persons of Christ. There's one person. But we have to distinguish, meaning we have to understand what it means when Jesus does something according to his human nature and when Jesus is speaking about something according to his divine nature. Here's an example. We read a couple of chapters ago, Jesus got hungry. Is that according to his divine nature? Did the God of the universe get hungry? No. Christ, according to his human nature, got hungry. Same thing when Jesus got tired, when he got thirsty, when he felt pain. Those are all things that Jesus felt because of his human nature, not his divine nature. So we have to distinguish what we're talking about here. And what verses 19 through 23 are showing is that the Son is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. There's one will in God. There's no, no one that's less, no one that's greater, that the triune God is unified in purpose, in will, in act. And we can't view God as the sort of hierarchy of persons. There's one God with one will, none is greater, none is less. And sadly, these verses here have been used to promote heresy, <laughs> frankly. In the first couple centuries, verse 19 was used by the Arians to say that the Son is less than the Father. If you want to look at verse 19 with me, maybe we can try to see how someone might use this in that way. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. So the Arians would say, Jesus is the greatest creation of Father God. Even the Mormons would have this sort of language, where Jesus is the highest creation of the Father. But they would sort of read this language as Jesus is dependent on the Father. That the Son is even dependent on the Father for these sorts of things. That he has to submit to the Father. That it's almost like he's watching the Father do something. And then a little time passes and then Jesus does that thing. Or the Son does that thing rather. That's what the Arians were saying in the 4th and 5th century. And sadly, many people are saying the same thing today. There's, um, there's a theological position going around called ESS or EFS which stands for the eternal subordination of the Son. And what people, advocates of that position would say is they would point to verses like this, verses like later in John where Jesus says, the Father is greater than I. And they would say that the Son submits to the Father, to the Father, that the Son submits to the Father, not only in his human nature, but in his divine nature. They would take Jesus' submission on earth and they would push that back into eternity past, into the Trinity, and they would say that there's this sort of idea of hierarchy, of submission and authority in the triune God. And I would say that that is wrong. At best, it's misguided, and at worst, it's creating multiple gods with multiple wills, and that's a problem. And people, advocates of this position will use it to justify things like submission and authority in marriage. They'll say, 
just as the Son submits to the Father in eternity past, just like that, husbands, I mean wives, need to submit to their husbands. And so they would use this position to say, they would use it basically to prove complementarianism, what we know today. And so we are a complementarian church if we want to use that language, but we don't use, we don't base our relations of husband and wife to inform what we believe about the Trinity. Because the truth is, other people have used these doctrines of the Trinity to prove their own social issues. I was reading in a book called Simply Trinity, and he talks about people use the Trinity to prove socialism. People use the Trinity to prove egalitarianism, complementarianism. People use the Trinity to prove homosexuality. People use the Trinity to prove environmentalism. And the Trinity, this is what we call social Trinitarianism, where we use the Trinity to try to prove these different doctrines that we want to hold to. And the problem with that is it's really returning to these heresies of the 4th and 5th century. It's returning to Arianism. It's saying that somehow the Father is greater than the Son, according to His divine nature. That there's somehow three wills in God. Submission implies a difference of will, right? If you submit to your boss, what you're saying is, my boss has an opinion, and I have an opinion, and my opinion's different than my boss's, but I'm going to submit my opinion to my boss in this picture. So there's two wills. One will is thinking this, another will is thinking that. Submission is I'm going to withhold my what I desire and put forward what this other person who's in authority, I'm going to put their position forward, their will forward. We can't have that in the Trinity. <laughs> Because then we have three different wills. We have the Father willing something. The Son really wants to do something else, but he submits his will to the Father. That's three wills in the triune God. And that eventually leads to three gods. And that's a problem. So all that to say, I believe this, these verses are saying the very opposite. That there is a unity of the persons of the triune God. And that the Son is not saying here that he has to wait for the Father to do something, that he can only do what the Father do, does, it's sort of the dependent way. But he, what he's saying here is that the Son does not act independent of the Father. The Son's not going to go off and do whatever he wants. There is unity in the triune God. Undivided in their will and purpose. We call this the inseparable operations. <laughs> That's fancy theological language for saying the will of the triune God is undivided. So let's just read the verses, at least 19 and 20, with that sort of idea that the Son is not saying that he needs the Father in this sort of authority and submission way, but he's saying he's not going to act independent of the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does. <laughs> Likewise, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Or we could say it like this. My Father is working until now. I am working. The Son is putting his working on the same level as the Father's. There is one God, one will in God, not only in creation, but also in redemption. 
so how do, what do we do with this? <laughs> Kendall, you just, you told us you weren't going to give a theological lecture. You sort of just did. <laughs> Sorry. But let's try to, let's try to apply what we've heard, right? What we believe about God matters. What we believe about God matters. We don't just get to invent who God is. We don't just get to invent what he's like. Because when we invent what God is like, what we're really worshiping is not God, but ourselves. What we're really worshiping is not God, but ourselves. So it's important to know God rightly so that we can worship him rightly. And that in many ways, God is not like us. And that's a good thing. God is not like us. And that is a good thing. God is holy. God is infinite. God is unchangeable, immutable, not made of body, parts, or passions. One God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. And as one person said, it would be strange if God were not strange. It would be strange if the creator of the universe was not strange, was not different than us. God is not like us in many ways, and that's a good thing. And finally, we'll sort of focus our last couple minutes on verse 24, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That this triune God who existed in eternity before the world began, in his wisdom chose to create the world and in the fullness of time send forth his son to take on human flesh with a human will, a human mind, a human body, yet without sin, so that we might be saved from our sin, right? The perfect son of God took on flesh so that we might be saved, so that we might have what Adam failed to have and gain for his people, eternal life, glory, life everlasting, communion with God. And verse 24 is saying that whoever believes in him not only will have eternal life, what does it say? Has eternal life. Has passed from death to life. That eternal life is a present tense reality for the believer. We were dead in our sins. God has made us alive together with Christ. What does the book of Colossians say? Paul will be speaking to the Colossians and he'll say these, these words. If you want to turn there with me, Colossians chapter 2, he says this in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive, together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You were dead, God has made you alive. What does he say in chapter 1? He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption. That he has delivered us. He has brought us from death to life. He has transferred us 
into the kingdom of his beloved son. That on the cross, the final judgment of God broke into history. That on the cross, this eternal son of God took the punishment that we deserved, namely eternal wrath and curse. Or we could say it like this. The wrath and eternal hell that was due to sinners was poured out on the eternal Son of God so that we might have eternal life. We deserved eternal punishment. It took an eternal being, the Son of God, to pay for that sin, and it's so that we might have eternal life with Him. And 1 John 5.13 says this. This is the same writer of the Gospel of John. He says these words in his epistle. Talking about all the stuff he had just written about. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why did he write these things? So that you might know that you have eternal life. So that you might know that you have eternal life. The Son of God took on flesh, suffered the punishment that we deserve on the cross so that we might know that we have eternal life, that we've passed from death to life, that we have been delivered from our sins, that we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, that we've escaped the wrath and hell that we deserved so that we might know that we have eternal life, that this is good news for us. That we don't have to fear Judgment Day. I, maybe I've said this before. For much of my Christian life, I fear Judgment Day. I fear that my sin would keep me from my Savior. And I thought it wouldn't be enough. Whatever good I did, whatever I thought, I thought it wouldn't be enough. What Jesus is saying here in John chapter 5, for the one that believes, he has already passed from death to life. He has eternal life, that there's no judgment for the believer. Why? The judgment was already poured out on the Son. On the cross, the end judgment, the final eschatological act of judgment happened on the cross for believers. So we don't have to fear the final judgment. We can know that we have eternal life by faith in the incarnate Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for sending your son in the fullness of time, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might be adopted as sons and daughters into your family. These are weighty truths that are too deep for us to fathom. And so we come in worship and in adoration and in praise for what you've done for us in Christ on the cross, who was not only human, but was divine. Fully God and fully man, who took on nerve endings to feel the pain that we deserved. Who took on a body so that it might be crucified but also so that it might be raised again on the third day as a picture, as a foreshadowing, as the first fruits of our resurrection, 
so that we might live with you in eternity, having eternal life by the work of Christ. Help us this morning to believe these gospel truths and to trust in you by faith. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. We come now to the Lord's Supper where we're reminded that the Son of God did not simply look down from heaven and see us in our sins and do nothing, but he took on flesh, that he took on a body for us and for our salvation. And that this meal is for the people of the covenant, that this new covenant is better than the old because the promises are better. That this meal is for the covenant people of God and these promises are visible to us. I've just talked about with words what is promised to the believer, that you have eternal life, that for those who put their faith in Christ, they're saved. But the bread and the wine are a physical picture of what Christ has done for his people, that the promise is that his body was broken so that ours might be spared. His blood was shed to cover our iniquity. And you're meant to not only hear the words, but see the word <laughs> visibly, and that it's supposed to increase our faith and strengthen us and feed us spiritually. So we're to come confessing our sin, examining ourselves. Paul says that if we come in an unworthy manner, if we come just flippantly saying, here's another thing we have to do, that we're eating and drinking judgment on ourselves. That this is a serious, sober thing that we're to do, but we're also to come rejoicing, knowing that Christ has done it, he's finished the work. And some people might say, Kendall, you always talk about, if you're not a believer, don't come to the front, right? If you're not a believer, we ask that you stay in your seat. Won't that make people uncomfortable? Won't that make people who are in their sins feel uncomfortable? And to that I would say, it might, and it should. Not in an unnecessary way. We're not pointing at people. <laughs> we're, not to, we're not to do that. But there should be an uncomfortableness that actually is a grace to them. That this meal is for believers, it's for people who have put their faith in Christ, who have been baptized, who are members of a local church. And the people that don't believe are meant to ponder, why are they doing something that I'm not? What are they believing that I'm not? What sins am I committing and not repenting of that they have? So let's not come with pride or thinking that we're better than anyone else. But let's come humbly knowing that we're looking to our Savior who's redeemed us and saved us from our sins. Let's pray for this Lord's Supper. Lord, we thank you for this sacrament, this ordinance that you've given us to increase our faith. That is not just for every person in the world, but is for believers, for those that have put their faith in you. And it's meant to be a means of grace whereby our faith is strengthened, where we see the bread and the wine and are reminded of what you've done for us 2,000 years ago on the cross and that that is what our hope is in. Our hope is not in our works. Our hope is not in our ability to understand theology perfectly. Our hope is not in our perfect obedience. 
but in the perfect obedience of the Son. We pray that you would bless this meal and use it to the nourishment of our faith. In your name we pray. Amen. Come align and form as you're able. week we take the bread and we remember that Christ's body was broken, crucified, whipped for the forgiveness of our sins. So we take, we eat, we remember and we believe that Christ's body was broken for the forgiveness of all of our sins. Do this and live, but live and do this. Christ's blood was shed for the forgiveness of all our sins, past, present, and future. Amen. If you want to stand with me and turn to him, 319, we'll sing... Psalm 23 to the tune of Amazing Grace. I was thinking about this song this week. It's a beloved song by many because it talks about the Lord providing leading to green pastures, but it even talks about this dark valley of the soul <laughs> that many of us have experienced, maybe we're even experience it now, but it says that the Lord will comfort us, that he's furnished a table in the presence of our enemies, that even though Satan accuses us of our sin, our guilt, that because of the work of Christ, our cup overflows, and I love how it ends with this sort of picture of heaven. <laughs> That goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So, let's sing this together.
mornings where we're reminded of God's providence and providing for us with food and shelter. And Paul even says, with these things I will be content, <laughs> which is convicting for us as Americans. With food and shelter, hopefully we can be content and above that God has given us all that we have and he's given us jobs and means to provide for us and our families and so we give a portion of that back to him out of gratitude and worship for what he's done. So let's pray for our offerings this morning. Lord, we thank you for all that you've given us. We deserve none of it. As Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I'll return. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be your name. We pray that in all things we may be content. And as we're able to give, Lord, this morning, may we give joyfully. May we remember the gifts that we've given. And may, we, may you use them for the growth of your kingdom, for the proclamation of the gospel throughout the world. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. doxology. Grace and peace as you go. Amen. 